0: Please open now in your Bibles to Acts chapter 1. If you would, please stand together now. Let's express our reverence for God's written word as we prepare for the reading and the preaching of God's word, which he intends to bless, for the grass withers and the flowers will fade away, but the word of the living God will endure forever. So his people strive to hear and heed it faithfully together. This is the word of God. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands to the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Dear Holy Spirit, we thank you that by your power you're pleased to raise Jesus from the dead, that same power that works life in our hearts. And we ask now that you bless the reading and especially the preaching of your word for the glory of the Father, the Son, and you, the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. I'm excited this morning to be introducing to you the book of Acts. I've been eager to do this for quite a long time, as some of you already know. And I have mentioned this before, but I will say again, I'm grateful to the ladies of the church who, uh, unbeknownst to me, as I was planning to preach the book of Acts, had started their own trail into the very same book, which made me a little nervous uh, how they might take their pastor beginning to preach a book that they were already studying together. And not only were they willing to tolerate it, uh, they were highly encouraging, for which I am sincerely grateful and say a little differently. It's great to be in a church that loves the Word of God that much. And today we begin our journey together into the book of Acts. And I grant that this is arguably a, a rather unusual sermon outline. <clears throat> a One of its kind. A five-point outline. But, but hold on, it won't be as long as you're probably worried uh, but, but there is something of a 5-4-3-2-1, a little bit of a countdown as we lift off into the book of Acts, and I want to co- cover these things as we begin our way into this book. You have the outline there, so I won't go over them all now, uh, but I do want to jump right into point one, uh, the five acts of the book of Acts, which is another way of saying, uh, what is the structure of the book, basic introductory information the book of Acts was written by a Gentile for a Gentile. It's very important to remember that. In this manner, uh, the book of Acts is different than the other Gospels, though it clearly carries the same, meme, uh, same meaning and momentum in a lot of ways. Luke, of course, has written a note of the Gospels, but there's a unique emphasis here that's placed upon God's mission and heart for the Gentiles. Luke, who is the author of the book, is referred to several other places in the Bible. He is the same Luke that wrote the Gospel of Luke. He's referred to as a beloved physician in Colossians 4.4. 4. He may have not only been a travel companion of Paul during Paul's second and third missionary journeys, as we learn in the book of Philemon, he was also with Paul in prison and quite likely alone with Paul for some time just before Paul's death in Rome. We learn this from 2 Timothy 4. So Luke, the physician, has a high writing style that is beautiful, that is poetic, and is precise. In many ways, the sort of material you'd expect from a doctor. He has big words, and he uses them well. But he writes to a man named Theophilus, whose name is fantastic. It means friend of God in Greek, who is also an Italian, or likely an Italian of high station. Uh, This cannot be proved with certainty, but arguably, Luke and Theophilus are both from Rome, which is to say they are Gentiles from Italy. All right, so I'm going to tell you about Luke. There's a metastructure to the book that's very helpful to see, and I want you to you know, think in a certain sense now. Of, you know, we're flying over uh, terrain at slightly high altitude, but we will come down on a needle-like point here at the end. But the the first main or first main point, first main act in the book of Acts is here in chapter 1, where we find the apostles waiting for the gift of the Father that we know is the Holy Spirit. In many ways, the Holy Spirit uh, just abounds all over the book of Acts, but here in the first chapter, we find them waiting for it. Then Jesus begins to carry out all that he promises to do in chapter 1, beginning in chapter 2. So if Acts 1.8 tells us that the gospel is going to go, and I want you to notice the order, this becomes very important for the book of Acts as a whole, when Jesus says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, they're grouped together, and then to the ends of the earth. If that is what is introduced in chapter 1, in chapter 2, it begins to happen, so that chapters 2 through 7 establish the church in Jerusalem, exactly the way Jesus said it would be. Then beginning at chapter 8, Going into chapter 12, you see the gospel, now like a rock hitting water, uh, pushing its waves out to Judea and Samaria, the second geographic place that Jesus said it would go. And then next, in chapters 12 through 21, you see the gospel going to Europe and Asia Minor. Just as Jesus said, in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth, beginning with these Gentile countries, Europe and Asia Minor, that would surround Jerusalem. So just as Jesus says things would happen in Acts 1-8, that in many ways becomes the macro structure of the book. The gospel, like a rock, traveling across the waters of the world. But then it takes a very interesting twist. How the book ends is, in many ways, not the way that you might have expected it to end. uh, In verses 22 through the end of the chapter, particularly the close, not the end of the chapter, the end of the book, but particularly the close of the book shows gospel. Excuse me, get my words together. Shows Paul in prison. Perhaps the last place that you would expect him. So chapters 22 through the end of the book, in a certain sense, display the gospel. The gospel in trial before a watching world. Paul is arrested. Paul is in prison, <clears throat> and that is where Paul will likely die. So what does the structure, the big picture, reveal to us? Well, this is pretty important. We're still in my first uh, mega point on the Acts. What does the structure tell us about the book of Acts? Well, it tells us these three little things that are not very little. One is the purpose of God. The purpose of God in the book of Acts is to bring the gospel to the nations. That is his purpose. Second, the plan of God. The plan of God is to use his church to build his church, which becomes a beautiful point to which we'll return over and over and over. God has a means of building His church, and His means of building His church is His church. So if you're wondering where do we fit in, there it is. And finally, how? How does it get done? Well, if the purpose of God is to bring the gospel to the nations, if the plan of God is to use His church to build His church, it is the power of God that enables the mission to go on. The same Spirit that raises Jesus from the dead, is referred to as the promise of the Father in chapter 1, really is the one working behind the scenes throughout the entirety of the book of Acts, accomplishing the purpose of God by implementing the plan of God. So to say it differently, what God began to do in chapter 1, he continues to do all the way through chapter 28, and he does it in and through his church. And when will he stop? When are we done? It's a great question. At the end of the age. When all of God's children are finally brought home. That's what the book of Acts is about. So, let's move on then to point two, four bridges. The places that the book of Acts is going to take us. Well, I'd like you, as I'm doing the intro today, uh, to think of two different metaphors. One, I want you to think about a V. We started at the top, and it's wide. And now it's getting a little bit narrower. And at the end, it'll come to a point or, if that didn't work for you, I want you to think about a plane. You've all been in one. And you're looking out the window at high altitude. But as you begin your descent, all of a sudden you begin to make out the trees. Then you begin to tell uh, those are cars, not houses. And then you begin to tell those are people, not poles. And your, your vision gets a little bit more and more precise. That's exactly what we're attempting to do here and to show what Luke is wanting us to see even at this higher level. Dennis Johnson in his wonderful little introduction to the book of Acts, uh, tells us that a helpful way to think about the book of Acts is to think about a bridge. What does a bridge do, and what does a bridge not do? Well, what a bridge does is it takes us from one place to another. You knew that. It overcomes distance, and it creates connection between things that would be otherwise separated. Those are things that a bridge does. But here's something a bridge does not do, and this is just as important. Bridges do not evaporate distance. They do not eliminate distance. They overcome it. They make it possible to travel back and forth. In the book of Acts, that's exactly uh, what we see, that God himself is indeed a bridge Builder, and he builds different kinds of bridges. In fact, we could argue that there are four. One bridge that we see God build throughout the book of Acts is a bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. This is part of what Luke wants Theophilus to see, it is part of what the Holy Spirit wants us to see, because the Old Testament made many promises, and in a certain sense, many of those promises were bound to the people of Israel. But Luke, a Gentile writing to a Gentile, and myself now standing before an almost exclusively Gentile audience, we should ask the question, how did we get into this story? And Luke's point in connecting the Old Testament to the New is that we were a part even of God's Old Testament plan for His New Testament people. So in other words, the Old Testament makes many promises, and all of those promises find their yes and amen in Jesus Christ. But not simply their fulfillment, they also find their power and their fruition in the Holy Spirit. So if the Holy Spirit, in some ways, is a little-known character in the Old Testament, he occupies virtually center stage in the book of Acts. Luke is a literary artist, showing us the intricate relationship between the Old Testament and New Testament. As one author has pointed out, a third of the book of Acts is, guess what? Sermons. And every sermon in the book of Acts draws from the well of the Old Testament. And every sermon in the book of Acts makes the gospel very clear in God's role and plan for the Gentiles alongside of it. So the second bridge then very clearly is between the Jew and the Gentile. What a fitting theme for a day is this. The gospel came first to the Jews. The gospel goes next to The Gentiles. This is why the book begins by Luke saying, or referring to all that Jesus began to do and say. And the point about a beginning is that it's not yet been done. He began to do and say certain things. Uh, The mission of God to reach the Gentiles began in many ways. The expansion of the kingdom began in many ways in the earthly days of Jesus, as he did and he spoke, but is not yet completed. He hands that baton off to his apostles. He hands that baton off to his church. All that he began to do and say, we continue to do and echo in a manner of speaking. This is why the beginning of Acts, if you've thought much about the Gospel of Luke, they begin in a very similar way. Luke 1 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Luke 1 and Acts 1 are, in a certain sense, uh, two parts of the same whole. Remember again that Luke was written by a Gentile for a Gentile. This is his second book, but it was written, however, about the king of the Jews who has a glorious plan to be the light of the nations. In many ways, therefore, the Gospel of Acts, or the book of Acts, answers the question of Romans 11.1. Has God rejected his people? You're probably wondering that. How can you not at a time like this? Has God rejected and altogether everlastingly forsaken his people? The answer is no. In fact, Paul says, may it never be. That's putting it mildly. But it also answers another question, what about the nations? And the answer is, God has a plan for them too. This brings us to our third little bridge, and that's one between the time of the apostles and our day. Acts is a book of history, and as a book of history, it's remarkably relevant and applicable to our own day. Acts is not only relevant, it is inspiring. There are stories here that will make us weep. There are stories here that will make us want to go to battle, so to speak, not in a physical sense, but in a spiritual sense. The book of Acts lays out God's plan for his church until he comes back to gather his church up into its arms. The book of Acts gives the church a sense of identity in a world that cannot find what its identity is or ought to be. The book of Acts tells us who we are, why we're here, what we're supposed to be doing until Jesus comes again. And it also tells us and makes very clear why the world is constantly antagonistic against the gospel and against the church. For Christians that are craving the idols of comfort and ease and longing simply to be liked and to live and to let live, the gospel of Acts, the book of Acts, makes it very clear why that's never been the case. It wasn't the case back then, and it's not the case today. The last bridge is a very important one. Don't miss this one, or you'll get stuck on the wrong side. The last bridge is between earth and heaven. Acts has a lot to say about heaven. Christians ought to have more. More to say about heaven. More to think about heaven. The book of Acts begins by reflecting on the Son of God who came down from heaven. It loudly and quickly boasts about the resurrection of the Son of God back into heaven. It fixes the eyes of the apostles before they begin their mission, before they begin carrying out what we call the Great Commission. It focuses their eyes upon Jesus resurrected and ascended into heaven and says in a certain sense, as you go about your mission, don't take your eyes off Christ in heaven. Keep your eyes on the prize fix your eyes upon Christ in heaven the very same way that he has come. He will return. What does Luke mean by that? It's a beautiful answer. Bodily. He came to this world to be embodied, to be incarnate. He was lifted up from this world, not simply like a spirit, but embodied. And they are told, keep your eyes on the resurrected, ascended Christ. What happens to the church when our eyes are fixed elsewhere? We lose our place. We forget our identity. We abandon our mission. There's a horrible cliche. I don't know who made it up. They should probably be beaten and punished. There are some people who are so heavenly minded, they are no, that person cannot be popular in heaven. (laughs) Beloved, it's truly the opposite. It is only those who are heavenly minded who are any earthly good. And a person who is busy doing good things for God with their eyes not on him is a distracted person. A Christian goes about, as the apostles do, in the book of Acts, with their eyes always fixed upon the resurrected and ascended Savior who's not the Lord of the church. He's the reward of the church and the fruition of all of our labors. If you take your eyes off Christ, you are of no earthly good. But with your eyes Fixed upon Christ. Not only are you of earthly good, the earthly evils of this present evil age can do very little to harm and actually even discourage you. So let's move on to point three. Three persons. Who gets center stage in the book of Acts? Acts, in a certain sense, the title by itself suggests something like a drama. Act one, Act two, Act three, Act four, Act five. It's not the book of Act. It's the book of Acts. But who occupies center stage in this glorious drama? And the answer is the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So let me say it like this. The book of Acts, as we'll see, is beautifully Trinitarian, and our theology should be, our vocabulary should be, our worship should be, even our mission should be. We often talk about the book of Acts, and I think in a right manner of speaking, I'm not pushing back on this, but capture this point. We often talk about the book of Acts as the New Testament book that really puts the Great Commission into motion. Almost like in the Old Testament, the book of Joshua really gets Israel where they're supposed to be going, and there's strong parallels between Joshua and the Old Testament and Acts in the New. So that is fair. But we ought to say the same thing with almost equal energy About the Trinity, the Gospel, I keep saying the Gospel of Acts, I'm not quite sure why, but I actually like the mistake. The book of Acts propels the doctrine of the Trinity in ways that the Gospels only introduce. Once Jesus is raised and ascended, the Holy Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead becomes a major, visible, if you will, actor, and the drama of God, this divine display of the power of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the purpose of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the plan of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Think about uh, what the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28, is to the book of Acts. Well, Matthew 28 introduces the Great Commission, but it's the book of Acts that embodies it. They don't do much at the end of that, right? They just stand around and look confused, but not in Acts, once the Spirit comes, think also of that great uh, that great deposit that Jesus gave regarding the Holy Spirit in John sixteen through eighteen. That beautiful discourse that tells us about the Holy Spirit that is to come, but it's in the Book of Acts that the Holy Spirit comes, and all those beautiful things, those beautiful promises that Jesus made about what would happen when the Spirit does come, are embodied and come to fruition here. Think about the son. Excuse me. I'm step back. Think more about the father. We go there first. It is the father who's made a promise to the son and the church in him. Verse four. It is the father we are told when the disciples ask uh, what many argue is one of the worst questions. And the last question, by the way, the disciples asked Jesus, is at this time will you now restore the kingdom of Israel? John Calvin said that question has as many problems as it does words. But it's the Father who, to whom Jesus refers and says, no, is it not for you to know. It's the Father who has fixed the time of the end of the world. It is the Father who sent the Son, and with the Son, uh, the Spirit to raise the Son from the dead. Acts remedies, beloved, what I'm trying to say, is our truncated Trinitarian theology. We often confess that we believe in one God and three persons, but at a practical level, we don't think much about the Father. At a practical level, we think too little about the Spirit. Acts as a remedy for an out-of-balance Trinitarian theology. And let me put it in question form just to illustrate it. Who do you love the most, the Father, the Son, or the Holy Spirit? Why do we talk that way? Who loves you the most, the Father, the Son, or the Holy Spirit? You've been at the church for a while and you've learned how to take my test. What should the answer be? Yes. The one who loves us most is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the one we ought to love the most is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. One God in three persons. Jesus is that tie that binds every promise together. He is, if you will, if you turn the the pages of the book of Acts, He is the glue that binds every page. He is the one whose words and works are being displayed in the church. Remember, it's the same Luke who described that lovely walk with Jesus in Luke 24, on the hill countries of Emmaus, touching on every book of the Old Testament and how they all point to Jesus. It is here that same Luke showing us how all those things that pointed to Jesus are now being fulfilled in him. That it was Jesus who came to lay down his life in this world as a ransom for many. It was Jesus who, though he was sinless in his thoughts, his words, and his deeds, yet he died a sinner's death, being crucified and condemned to a cross. But it was the same Jesus who is raised from the dead. And that not only becomes our message, it gives to the church a message worth proclaiming and a power by which to do it. It's Jesus, therefore, who not only commissions his church, but he makes this lovely promise that he is with his church to the end of the age. And where better do you see that promise begin than in the book of Acts, when the church is for the first time persecuted and the resurrected Jesus comes to her defense and says to a murderous rogue, teacher of the law, you're not just persecuting them, you're persecuting me. It is the spirit who inspired the word of God. Excuse me, I jumped down. My notes slipped away from me. The same Jesus who commissions his church also grants his spirit that the spirit might come and enable the church to do all that was called to do. Did you know that one of the nicknames given to John Calvin was the theologian of the spirit? Why don't we have a similar nickname? It's the same spirit that the Father refers to as his gift to the church. That same spirit, again, who raised Jesus from the dead and then comes to you, beloved, to give the new birth. The Spirit of God that inspired the Word of God preserves the Word of God and illumines it. Even now, do you know who is at work? It's not simply the guy standing up here sweating in front of you. It's the Holy Spirit who is not sweating. And yet working life in our hearts through the reading and even the preaching of His Word, that same Holy Spirit that opens the eyes of the blind, that quickens the heart of the dead, that we might say yes in our hearts to things in the flesh we would otherwise say no to. And not only say yes, but even begin to yearn for the things of heaven. For where do such godly desires to serve God and to long for heaven itself come from? Do you think they come from you? Do they come from your flesh? Is it just natural to want to say yes to God and long for the things of heaven? No, beloved, that is the work of the Spirit. And the same Spirit who began that good work is also the Spirit who will complete it to the day of Christ Jesus. It is the Spirit who gives us life because He is the life-giving Spirit Is the same Spirit speaking in and through the church and gets the final last word. If you go to the end of the Bible, to Revelation 22, one of the last things said is that the Holy Spirit continues to speak through the church to the world, saying, come and meet Jesus. What's the point? The book of Acts is all about the Father, all about the Son, and all about the Spirit. And that leads us to point four, which is pretty corrective. It's a small point. Boy, if you mess this one up, it's going to be bad. How do we read this book? How do you read the book of Acts? Well, this is where I would suggest, if I can say it hopefully humbly enough, uh, it's really easy to make mistakes here. And I'm going to boil it down and say there are two uh, potential mistakes that we might make here, two lenses that we might look at And we need to be careful how we do so. Uh, The one is to make the book of Acts a paradigm for how the New Testament church ought to function in every way without exception. To make Acts the standard, the norm, the paradigm. You have to be very careful. Be with me here. Don't mess this up. Well-intended, serious, committed Christians wreck on this point. Don't mess it up. I've seen it injure people in my family. I've seen it injure people in churches I've pastored. And if if you read the book of Acts the wrong way, uh, it can be like not paying attention when driving around a curve. It's important to get it right. So Christians understandably struggle here. Why? Because it's in the Bible. And after all, where ought we to go for our example of what to do personally, individually, uh, even as churches? So much of the Bible describes things that the people of God do but this is the main distinction. You've heard it before. Not everything that the Bible describes does the Bible also prescribe. Just because it's in the Bible does not necessarily mean that we ought to do it. Just because it's in the Bible does not necessarily make it a norm for all of God's people in all places and at all times. The Old Testament is full of things that we might look at and say, even good things, those were not things that God commanded people to do forever. And If you don't have that straight, you can really mess up. But the New Testament has a similar dynamic, and that is embodied well in the book of Acts. Even positive examples. Several examples that are hopefully not that hard to imagine. In the book of Acts, At least on one occasion, we see people handling snakes and not dying. I grew up in North Carolina and was always somewhat amused at how it seemed like about once every five years, there was some snake handler, usually in Kentucky or West Virginia, that didn't make it at church. And you've heard these stories. And what do they appeal to? The Book of Acts. Or people being raised from the dead. I remember when I was in Florida, very, very sad a well-publicized story about a young girl who died. Uh, her parents were solid Christians in a solid, charismatic church, and they made a big deal, promising, promising, big language, that this girl was going to come back. T-shirts printed, funds raised, all kinds of attention draw to the things. She never came back. What does that do to a family? People in my own family will promise, "If you have just enough faith, you will be healed. And what happens when they're not? What lies, wherein lies the problem? Did you not have enough faith? Is God simply not happy with you? Maybe He's not even real? How many people have had a crisis of faith, a genuine crisis of faith, wrongly handling, not simply snakes, but the Word of God itself? <clears throat> so you have to be careful at making everything that you see In the Bible, and particularly in the book of Acts, a paradigm for all of God's people in all times and all places. One of the neatest names for a Christian ministry that I've ever heard of is Acts 29. It's brilliant. Why? Because there are only 28 chapters in Acts. And you can see the point. We will carry it on. And that ministry has been peppered with profound problems. Profound problems because it failed to embody this hermeneutical caution that I'm offering you now, not making everything in the book of Acts a paradigm. So often I hear, maybe you hear, people say something like this. I just, it's nostalgic, it's daydreamy, it's sweet, it's charming. I just want to go back to the way things were in the book of Acts. Be careful about that. You don't necessarily want to do that. God does not promise everything happens in the book of Acts is normative. There are many things people do there in the book of Acts that I would imagine most of you actually don't even want to do and would not be willing to do if I told you, like sell all your possessions and share a house together. It was remarkably quiet there. (laughs) Sort of surprised me. But only two days ago, I saw this quizzically illustrated at a gas station. I stood there to get gas. And there was two ladies there. I couldn't tell if they were friends or married. You know what I mean by that. Uh, And another lady came, pulled up in her car right in front of them, and just walked up to these two ladies. They did not look, the two ladies, poor or homeless or anything like that. And the other lady walked up to these two and handed them a large stash of cash. Looked like hundreds of dollars. And I was able to overhear this conversation, which really puzzled me. And the two ladies were just sort of surprised, like, what are you doing? And they tried to give it back to her. And the lady began rattling charismatic. I'm practicing my abundance. I'm living out of the overflow. I'm just trying to give it away. And I could hear the little charismatic Christian health and wealth gospel kind of stuff just trickling off of her very well-intended lips. And I had two thoughts. Number one was, I'm over here. <laughs> I have four kids. There are a lot of braces in my house. (laughs) College applications descend upon our mailbox like dust and pollen. But she never noticed me. But more importantly, bad theology leads to bad Christian living. Mishandling the Word of God uh, can lead to significant mistakes in the way we practice the Word of God. So one more. I want to flip side. Okay, So if it's possible, this is like a pendulum, if it's possible, on the one hand, to make the book of Acts our paradigm without distinction, no careful qualification, the other one is perhaps a meaningful problem, especially for us in the Reformed world that have land on the, okay, we are not charismatic side of the fence. And that is to make the book of Acts only descriptive and not very prescriptive. I can say a lot about this. <clears throat> Many great New Testament norms are established in the book of Acts. And with these, I'm sure I will get no pushback. In Acts chapter 2, baptisms of whole households, children included, are made visible. In Acts chapters 6 and 7, the office of deacon is established. And without it, where would we be? In Acts chapter 15, uh, Presbyterian polity is arguably established in a very clear and punctuated manner. But what, well, what is the book about? What is the book about? The book is about the church spreading the gospel. The book is about the church on fire for the gospel. The book is about the church being almost something that cannot be stopped no matter how much the world seeks to oppose it. Yes, the charismatic gifts disappear by the close of the canyon. If you look at the latter books written in the New Testament, you can't find those gifts. Yes, Presbyterian polity abides. You can see it in Timothy Yes, uh, you can see how the Scripture interprets Scripture, and these are helpful. Yes, the book of Acts is a book of transition, not completion, but the great transition it begins, beloved, is the church carrying out the great commission until the end of the age. And this, the book of Acts, not only describes, it prescribes. And a church that is not healthfully, heartily, committed to the spread of the Great Commission locally, regionally, and globally is not a healthy church. Is not a healthy church. And I'm not saying that to suggest that we are not a healthy church. I'm saying that to say we need to be about what the book of Acts is really about. And that brings us to our final point. Mission. God's glory manifest through the carrying out of the Great Commission, one of the things I find is so, so remarkable, puzzling, and beautiful about the book of Acts is, as I alluded to earlier, how it ends. What a strange ending that this book that begins with power, you will receive great power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you can almost get this sense that the church is going to spread like a wildfire without uh, resistance or opposition, that the gospels are going to go forward and almost have like a Midas touch everywhere they go. uh, Hearts are going to fall like dominoes before them and everything that they say will be well and happily received. And certainly that's not only the way we might think of them, it's the way they seem to think of themselves at times, even surprised at a manner of opposition. So does it surprise you that the book of Acts ends With the Apostle Paul, the Apostle to the Gentiles, in prison, sentenced to death. The gospel in chains. The gospel in prison. The gospel on death row. Imagine that. What do you make of this odd bookend? A book that begins with, you shall have power, ends with, you are in prison. Well, here's the point. It's a beautiful point if you capture it. Paul may be in chains, but the gospel cannot be imprisoned. The gospel is the power of God over life, over death, over powers above us, over powers beneath us. The crazy thing about the church is that which it has in common with its Savior. A Savior who was what? "...put to death, having bore the cross, and yet triumphed in life, being adorned with a crown. As went the Savior, so goes His church. As went His words, so triumphed even His deeds." The gospel is indeed, beloved, the power of God. It is not the world that gets the last word. It is not the world that gets the victory. It is not all the powers, visible and invisible, that shall reign forever. It is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ and His church." And the power of God is that power which knocks down gates, which opens up closed doors, which invigorates dead hearts, which inspires young and old minds alike. So what appears to be strength, wisdom, and victory according to the world is actually weakness, folly, and defeat in the eyes of God. And the flip side is just as true. What appears to be weak in the eyes of the world, an old man in prison with dim eyes and a bloodied back, there, beloved, we find the power of God. A power that cannot be quenched by all the darkness of this world. And even beyond the apostle to the Gentiles, the Savior who died. Apostles, plural, beaten. The church, at times, on the ropes. The book of Acts is wonderfully invigorating for the church, for you. Because there are times when our lives, in a certain sense, are kind of like the anticlimactic ending to the book of Acts. The Gospel of Mark has the last word. You know what the last word is in the Gospel of Mark? If You take the proper ending, and they were afraid. They were afraid. But their Lord was not. Paul was in prison, but the gospel could not be chained. And even from prison, Paul holds, if you will, his, captive, his captors captive. I was at a conference on missions uh, recently and heard a young man who wants to go plant a church in Chicago. He asked a question, why would you want to go to Chicago? He wants to go inner city, like right downtown in the midst of all the crazes and stuff that keeps making the news. And somebody pointed out, you know, all the churches have moved out of there into the suburbs, and the young man had a perfect response to it. He said, we have them surrounded. (laughs) There's nowhere they can go. What appears to be weak, and weakness in the eyes of the world, becomes simply a stage, beloved, to display the power of the gospel, the power of the Spirit. This is why Paul is not ashamed of that gospel in Romans chapter 1, and why we should not be as well. So, I want to end here by asking just a couple questions, landing the plane. This is the runway. I want to ask a question. It's a, it's, a, it's a trick question Does God have a mission for His church? Or does God have a church for His mission? The answer is not yes. Nice try. Each local church, there's a bit of foolishness here, but it's actually an important point, gets to our identity. Each local church does not and should not have a different mission statement. Jesus gave the mission statement to his church, and our mission statement is the Great Commission, and it does not expire until the end of the age. And one of the beautiful things is, Reformed folks have known this for a long, long time, but they sometimes need to be reminded. So I want to end with a pastoral use of the word promiscuous and suggests that that is not always a, a bad thing. And it comes to us by way of an uh, old Reformed confession, Canon of Dort, Article 2.5. This is a Reformed confession. Hear what it has to say. Moreover, the promise of the gospel is that whoever believes in Christ crucified shall not perish, but have eternal life. This promise together with the command to repent and to believe, ought to be declared and published to all nations and to all persons, and here's our word, promiscuously. Promiscuously. And without distinction, to whom God, out of His good pleasure, sends the gospel. What is the book of Acts about? God sending the gospel promiscuously. Without distinction, to the ends of the world, to the end of the gathering of his church, for the glory of his name, and the means that he used to do so, is you. Let's pray. Our trying God, we thank you that you, for all eternity, have had a purpose that in the fullness of time Jesus would come, that being obedient, crucified, and resurrected, the good news of his life, death, and resurrection would spread from sea to shining sea promiscuously, to the very ends of the earth without distinction regarding ethnicity, tribe, or tongue. And we ourselves are recipients and beneficiaries of that plan. You also have a means by which you intended to accomplish this, the gathering of the church through the work of the church. It's not that you need us, but it is the case that you've chosen to use us. And so we thank you finally for the power of the Holy Spirit, because often, O Lord, our life does not go quite the way that it should seem, at least in our mind. And often uh, what appears to be weakness to us is actually a stage by which the power of God might be displayed. And so I pray, Lord, for my brothers and sisters here, young and old, for myself, and ask that more and more you invigorate our hearts for the mission of our triune God. Your desire to see yourself glorified for the salvation and sanctification of people and the building up of your church. Help us to recognize, the Lord, that each and every one of us have a part. And as we work our way now through the book of Acts, help us together to find our parts and to play them well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.